Please take your copy of God's Word. Let's turn together to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. Our text this morning will be verses 25 to 37. Of course, a familiar passage to us, uh, what we call the parable of the Good Samaritan. Part of the reason why we're coming here is, as I mentioned last time, we're taking the Sundays of January to remind us of some of the most important things that connect directly to what we think God's called us uniquely to to be and to do here in this city. Um, Another way of talking about our mission. Last time we emphasized the fact that central to our mission is the gospel of God's grace, his, his undeserved, uncoerced favor shown to us in Jesus Christ. And and this grace takes dead sinners, those who are the walking dead, and raises them up, sets them free, places them at the right hand of the Father, makes them princes and princes of the King. That's what what God's grace has done for us through Jesus Christ. It's, It's transformed our characters. But grace not only transforms our characters, God's grace transforms our callings. Each of us have unique individual callings, and yet there's a, there's a very real sense in which there's a single calling. It's the calling to love, to, to love our neighbors uh, and to love our neighbors above all in Jesus' name. And so how does grace transform our understanding of that calling? Well, this very familiar passage uh, will help orient us in that direction. But in order for that to happen for us, we need God's help. Let's ask him for it. Would you pray with me, please? Almighty God, we bless you for your great kindness to us in and through Jesus Christ that you come over and again and you you declare your word to us. Indeed, as we've already heard in the statement of faith that the word of God contained in the Old and New Testaments um, directs us how we might glorify and enjoy him, how to carry out that duty. And so, Lord, we, we pray this morning that you would direct us by your Spirit Indeed, Spirit, we pray that you would open our eyes to to see glorious riches in this portion of your gospel. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. 
Then he sent, set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So central to our vocations are our callings, whether those callings are as uh, husbands and wives uh, uh, or singled uh, and widowed and divorced, or whether those are our callings as parents and children, whether those are our callings as work- workers and worshipers, wh- whatever our callings may be, central to those callings is loving of love, love of God and love of neighbor. I mean, certainly in Jesus's first century world, everyone understood this. The great commandments of love for God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, love for neighbor as oneself, these commandments were, were incredibly well known. In our passage, when Jesus asks the lawyer how he reads the law, that, that's what came out of his mouth. That's, that's what he said. And from that day to this day, if, if we were to ask the question, what does God require? What's God called us to be and do in this world? I think many of us would come up with these things. Love God. Love your neighbor. Well, well the way we love our neighbors is through our good works, through those good things prepared beforehand for us as God's masterpiece, as we saw last time from Ephesians chapter 2. It was Martin Luther who once observed that, that God doesn't need our good works. Right? He, he came out of a medieval system where uh, the, the church taught that, that God actually needed our good works in order to reward us with either a merit that was like the merit that God himself would earn or, or actually God's own merit. Luther said, no, 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 no. God doesn't need our good works, but our neighbors do. Our neighbors need our good works because, in fact, our those good works for our neighbors, that's actually the way we love them and the various callings, that, specific callings that God's given us. Uh, whether we're employers or workers or whether we're those who work at home, whatever our, our specific callings may be, those good works we do for our neighbors, that's the way we love them through our callings. Uh, Luther once put it this way, a, a Christian lives not in himself, but in Christ and in the neighbor. He lives in Christ through faith, but he lives in his neighbor through love. We might be used to the idea that we live in Christ as we rest in him, as we trust him, we put our faith in him. But there's a very real sense we live in our neighbors as well. And how do we live in the neighbor, through love, Luther said. Elsewhere, he said that each one ought to live, speak, hear, suffer, and die in love and service for another, even for one's enemies. Well, needless to say, that's a very different perspective 
from the world around us. For, for most of our neighbors, they see their callings as, as doing whatever it takes to take care of themselves. And, and then if God gives them a family, though they may or may not credit God for that, if they have families, then perhaps they might extend their circle of care beyond themselves to include their, their families. But, but such a private concern is far from what Jesus teaches. In fact, the good news is that God's grace transforms us in such a way that our callings change. We, we, we begin to realize that the good life is not summed up in what we have, but in whom we love. And that love's not simply expressed in, in good thoughts or in good words, as, as the Christian writer Bob Goff puts it. Love does. Love does. Love acts. It, it doesn't simply plan or strategize. Love does something. Love confesses. Love forgives. Love mentors. Love builds. Love shows up. Love writes notes. Love listens. Love speaks. You see? Love doesn't walk by on the other side, offers thoughts and prayers, and then moves on. No, we know that love doesn't do that because Jesus himself came and saw and had compassion and died and rose again for us. Love did. And this is love. Not that we love God, but that God loved us and he sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins, the Bible says. Love did. And because we've been loved in this way, our callings find their grounding right here. We are called to love. That's our calling. My friend Steve Garber reminded us of this several years ago when he came for a week worth of teaching here at IPC. He reminded us that because we've been loved by God, we must love what God loves. God loves this world. And so because we've been implicated in God's love and we see the need of the world, we, we can't help but love. We can't help but extend and act. We're called to love. That's what this lawyer in this passage discovered in, in response to the good questions that he asked. Now, to be sure, Luke tells us that, that maybe his motivation wasn't the best in his questions. He was trying to test Jesus. But that doesn't mean that his questions weren't good questions. These are actually perennial human questions. Questions that have been asked regardless of season, regardless of culture. Indeed, the first question that, that this lawyer asks was simply, what is the good life? It's a question, I think, that, that each culture asks. The way he puts it is, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's the question with which he tests Jesus. We hear that question, and our Protestant ears perk up, and we say, you can't do anything. You can't do anything to inherit eternal life, the life of the age to come, the life of God's kingdom. And of course, that's right. On this side of the cross in the empty tomb, um, we, we recognize that it's faith alone in Jesus Christ, not our doing, that, that allows the reception of eternal life. But, but this way of asking the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That was the way it was asked in the first century. 
that if you read on in Luke's gospel in Luke 18, the rich young ruler will ask that same question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And really, that question, what must I do to inherit eternal life, is really simply the question, what is the good life? And how might I gain the good life? Because, of course, eternal life, life of the age to come, that is the good life. And Jesus himself doesn't reject the question, say, hey, you got it wrong, you need to read some more Luther and Calvin to get your theology straight. doesn't say that. No, he actually honors the question. And he honors the question by responding with his own questions. Right? He says, what's written in the law? How do you, how do you read it? And the lawyer replies with his answer, which was the standard first century Jewish answer to the question, what is the good life and how do I gain it? He saw it in verse 27. He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. What's the way to the good life? Love God, love your neighbor. And what does Jesus say in reply? Exactly right. Do this and you will live. This is the way to the good life. But it's, it's one thing to get the answer right. It's another thing to, to understand what's really at stake. Because the, the lawyer in giving this answer on what is the good life, loving God, loving it, he doesn't even question whether he loves God. I mean, perhaps we might have the humility to say as a follow-up question, well, how do I, Jesus, love God with all my heart? with all my soul, with all my strength, with all my mind? What, what spiritual disciplines do I need to, to observe? What, what sacrifices do I need to offer? I'm something. He doesn't ask any of those questions. He thinks he, he's got that. Now, his mind goes to, to a second question. Again, it's also, it's also a good question. It's a question undoubtedly that you and I have asked. He asks, and who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? And in asking that question, what he really wants to know is, what, what is the circle of my love? Who, who's included in the circle? Who's included in the sphere? How, how broad is the sphere of my love? For whom should I be responsible to care? How far does my love reach? Again, I, I think that's a perennial question. It's a perennial question in the 21st century. It was a perennial question in the 1st century. First century Jewish theological teachers, theological professors, they, they had answers to that question. They, they taught that Jews were to, in their words, to love the sons of light and to hate the sons of darkness. Uh, they also taught their words, if you do good, know to whom you do it and do not help the sinner. And Jesus himself understood that this was what the contemporary teaching was. You might remember in the Sermon on the Mount at the end of chapter 5, he says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Well, who was saying that? First century theology professors. In answer to this good question, who is my neighbor? And so the, the lawyer, in, in asking the question, likely had a view of the world that limited his circle of love. That, that told him that he was a good neighbor if he loved the sons of light and did his good works for the sons of light, for those whom he knew, for those who were already in the circle. And it was okay for him to leave others outside. It's, 
in response to that second good question, that Jesus will end up telling us what a good neighbor looks like. He, he, he answers this lawyer's question, as you know, with a story. A man's going down from Jer Jerusalem to Jericho, and it's literally going down. The journey from Jerusalem to Jericho is 18 miles with 3,300 feet of elevation loss. You are going down, but it's not straight down. Like a lot of the, the paths you might take going up the side of a mountain, there's a number of switchbacks and turns, lots of places for bad people to hide, especially in the craggy crevices along the way. And as this man was going down that road around the bend, he is attacked by a band of robbers. Um, they didn't just take his money. No, they, they took his car. They, took, they smashed the windows, right? They, they took his clothes. They beat him. They left him for dead. They didn't know whether he was alive or dead. The passage says he was half dead. And there he is on the side of the road. So, suddenly someone's coming. Who's that coming by? Maybe, maybe he can help. It's a priest. It's a, he's a pastor, a teaching elder, a man of God. He's been to seminary. He's been to Reformed Theological Seminary. He's a master of divinity. Surely he knows that, that we're to love God and love our neighbor. And he's coming back from worship services, perhaps. Perhaps he's just reminded the people of their duties to love God and love neighbor. Surely, if anyone is going to see and, and, and have compassion and stop, it's, it's this priest. But he doesn't, does he? No, the passage tells you he sees and he walks by. Perhaps as he walked by, he says, bless you, my son. Make some kind of gesture to indicate his, his thoughts and prayers. And he moves on. Well, but there's someone else coming. A little bit later, look, it's a Levite. Oh, to be sure, he's, he's the second-ranking official in Jewish life. But he's a ruler of the temple. He's a ruling elder. He's been through all the training. He understands the 600, 613 different laws that are in the Old Testament. He's been tested, passed by his presbytery, perhaps, by a session, perhaps. Here he is, surely, this holy man set apart for these duties. He will stop and care for this man. But he doesn't. No, the passage tells us, Jesus' story tells us, like the priest, he sees the man. He but he passes by on the other side. How's that possible? I mean, Jesus doesn't give us motive doesn't tell us the priests and the Levites' feelings. He just reports their actions, that they came, they saw, and they passed by. But in passing by, they left this man to die. Then a third man came. And notice the difference, the way Jesus puts it in verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him... He had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds and all the rest. He, he acted. We're, we're so used to the language of Good Samaritan. We, we need to understand 
how the lawyer would have felt this, how he would have received this. To this lawyer, as Jesus talks about this good Samaritan seeing and having compassion and going and beginning to touch this Jew, his skin would have started crawling. Because this is a religious other and a racial other. He may have even thought, this is the last person on earth I would have wanted to help me. But that's who stumps. He came and he saw and he had compassion. This pagan, this racial other, identified with the man in need in such a way that he was, he was prepared to act for his relief. He, he put himself in the needy person's shoes. And he said, how would I want someone to respond if I were left half dead? by the side of the road, and he acted accordingly. So he stopped, he went, he bound up his wounds. He used wine as an antiseptic. He used oil to soothe the wounds. He picks this man up and he puts him on his own animal, puts him in his own car, if you will. He, he takes him to an inn, a place that actually was more risky than the road in those days. And he gave a significant amount of money, two full days worth of work's worth of pay. A significant amount of money to further the man's care. And then he opens himself up to further costs and, by extension, to be taken advantage of because he would not be, be able to verify what the innkeeper said. Now ask yourself, if you were this man in need, was the Samaritan, the pagan, the last person on earth who, who may, you may have wanted to help you, was he your neighbor? Of course he was. That, that's what Jesus says at the end of it all. Verse 36, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy, Jesus said, you go and do likewise. Who was the good neighbor? The good neighbor was the one who had compassion, who put himself on in the other man's shoes, but then he acted. And Jesus is saying to us, those who've experienced the good life, those who know the, good, the eternal life of God now, those who have received the, the life of the age to come, who've been raised with Christ and seated in the heavenly places, those who've been loved by God in such a way, and so in turn love God, we must be the ones who put no limits on who our neighbors are. We put no limits on our circle of care. Our circle of care and compassion is wide. We recognize there, there's no them there's only us. You see, that's, that's where Jesus is pointing us. That's the work in which he's called us. So I ask you this morning, who have you excluded outside your circle of care? Who've, who have you put into the category of enemy or, or son of darkness? This person you won't help, this person you won't even listen to. Well, for most of us in the abstract, we'd say, well, there's no one we wouldn't help. Or maybe there's one or two. But aside from the one or two, there's no one else I wouldn't help. But I want to push you a little further. To whom have you shut your heart? On whom have you refused to have compassion? In whose shoes have you refused to stand? Is it the the poor man who doesn't have the skills or education to get a job and whose house is falling down around him and whose neighborhood is ruled by, by drug dealers or by, by young men who have nothing better to do and so they commit violence and 
They can't get access to uh, the police and to the district attorney to pay attention to them. Can't, can't get access to other areas of care that our city might offer them. Are they outside your circle? Or is it the, the 15-year-old that's trapped in a depressing family system that, that offers no hope beyond immediate pleasures of, of sex or alcohol or drugs or violence? whose school system, our school system, struggles to deal with so many who are hopeless, who can't even read, who may be children and yet themselves parents of children. Or maybe outside your circle of care is the woman in an abusive marriage who still loves the man who hits her, who who can't leave because she doesn't have the work skills to be able to provide for herself and her children, who doesn't even know where to go for housing or food and a safe place. If you were in these people's shoes, wouldn't you want help? Wouldn't you want someone to step in and have compassion? To engage even though it's going to prove to be difficult and messy and hard and long-term? Of course you would. But here's the thing. You've been in those people's shoes. I mean, some of you have literally been in those people's shoes. But all of us have been in far worse and more dire circumstances. And there was one who was a good Samaritan, the good Samaritan, who came down, bent down, had compassion, rescued us. Friends, that was Jesus, the one who is our good, good Savior. Because you and I weren't simply half dead lying by the side of the road. As we saw last time in Ephesians chapter 2, you were all the way dead. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And not only were we dead, we were ungodly sinners. We were the enemies of God. Romans 5 uses that very language. In verse 6, calls us the ungodly. Verse 9, why we were still sinners. Verse 10, why we were enemies. That's you and me. And so we were in an awful condition. We were in a place of extreme need. If someone didn't help us, Someone didn't rescue us. We would go to a well-deserved hell for all eternity. But God had compassion on us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, right? God, God had compassion on us. He sent Jesus, and Jesus had compassion. He came, he saw, he stopped, he risked himself to the uttermost. He became our servants by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. And who did he do this for? Not not for people in the abstract. He did it for you. He did it for me. So that we would be ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven. And why did he do this? Because he loves you. Because he's the good savior. And as we trust in Jesus, as we sit at his feet, as the next passage we'll talk about, the scene with Martha and Mary, is we sit at his feet, the good teacher's feet, and we learn as the one thing needful who this God really is we're to love. We begin to see this world and our neighbors and one another as he does. We see with his eyes. And we begin to say, I was dying. And Jesus rescued me. Can I do anything less for this person in my path? You see, this is our calling This is our calling. We each have specific callings, but it all flows into this calling. Having received such grace, having been shown such love, 
We're, being, we're called to love our neighbor in real and tangible ways. And this call extends to everybody always. To the mess-ups and the misfits, to the gracious and the graceless, to those grieved and those who give, to our oppressors and opposers and even our enemies. Our circle is as wide as Jesus' own for our neighbor. Because our neighbor is everyone who crosses our path. The question then is whether we will restrict our circle of love and care, our circle of good works, to those who we think are simply the children of light, or will we extend those circle of care and compassion and action to include everyone? Or to put it a different way, when, when we see the need right in front of us, will we walk by the other side? Or will we stop, have compassion, and do something to help? Would you pray with me, please? Lord Jesus, we bless you that, that you've loved us in just this way. That you saw and you had compassion and you did something. And you included all kinds of people in your circle of care. All kinds of people. Lord, grant us this same grace as we seek to move towards our family, certainly, but our neighbors, our co-workers, those in civic organizations in which we find ourselves. Whomever we come across, may we, may we demonstrate the same compassion, but may we also act because love does. Lord, grant us this grace, we ask. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.